you know, we've been, uh, since the beginning of the year, last six months or so, we've been uh, working through a, a bunch of different series, and most of those series have been topical series where we've been dealing with kind of places where we're at as a church and, and things we need to work on. So I'm going to do a little review with you. Anybody, remember, anybody who was here at Parker Ford uh, on January 1st, in, in, during January, remember what series we were working on we kicked off the year with? What's that? Somebody said it. Matthew. Oh, no, that was last year. Well, hey, great. Actually, I'm going to get to talking about that, too. Yeah, Matthew. We, were, uh, we did a, a worship series, remember? We did get, get small, get close, and get grateful. And, we, and then we had a culminating Sunday where uh, we just had a worship Sunday, which we also, again, had uh, last week. We had another worship Sunday. After that, we went into a, a long series. Anybody remember what that series was? Nope, not tools, not yet. Relationships. Yeah, we went into a series about relationships. We talked. Remember, I had a bunch of things lined up here that we relate to, and it was. This is one of my. You know how you do like a highlight film. It should be that we have a highlight film for like the last six months of our church, and one of the highlights for sure would be when Nate and Josh. Josh is out praying right now, but Nate and Josh, we had them up here interlocking arms, you know. Uh, and we talked about, you know, put, lining up all the loves, the relationships in our life, and we're saying that God always has to be, it's not just that he's at the front of the line, it's that you have to clear the stage and put him up on a pedestal because there's no other love that should compare to his, and it helps all the other loves fall into place. Um, and uh, I get made fun of still for that, that series because I remember when uh, we were trying to decide which, you know, where things are lined up, and everybody kept telling me to put my surfboard like down at the end, and I was like not wanting to do it. You know, <laughs> um, so uh, after that we ha- we had Chris we not Christmas we had uh, uh, what comes before Easter Palm Sunday we had Palm Sunday and Easter and uh, I should be telling you right not you tell me yeah. And, uh, and then we had, we had a, a mini-series in there uh, about First John, uh, just a couple weeks. And then we had another big series, which we just got finished, which was tools, the spiritual tools, the tools of faith. We know that God's grace allows us to enter into the kingdom, to live in the kingdom, to thrive in the kingdom, but it gives us tools of faith to access that grace consistently. And we had the big tool bench up here, and we talked through all the different tools that God gives us to access the grace that he's blessed us with. Um, And then last week we had our worship Sunday. The reason I give you all that history of the last six months is to show that most of those series... uh, the, the reason we picked them, the way we go after that, is that Josh and I and then the worship planning team and I will we'll sit around and we'll think, like, where are we at as a church? And we'll be praying and asking God, guide us as far as where we need to go with our next teaching series. What's going on? We'll, we'll interact with some of you. Just We're always doing counseling sessions and things like that, hearing where everyone is. And then we'll say, you know, this is a thing we really need to focus on for a while. And so we'll go after it. But there's, there's a problem with that to an extent. That only works to an extent because... That's like, uh, it's like being your own doctor, you know, and that it works. You can self-medicate a little bit, but it's a little dangerous if you, if you go too far with it. And even though uh, Josh and I uh, are called to be pastors here and therefore it's our job to, to guide and to guide us through the scriptures, there's also a time when, you know, we just got to step back and not make the decision about what we need to hear. Um, sometimes God just has to make the decision. And sometimes he whispers it to us and we'll create a series. And then other times we just got to say, you know what? It's time for us to just read the scriptures for what they are. And we'll, we'll always preach out of the text. You know, we'll always be preaching out of the scriptures. But instead of deciding we need to focus on this angle or that angle, we'll just say, let's just go start preaching through a book of the Bible and let God dictate what we need to hear in this moment. You know, we'll each, we all need to learn the scriptures. We all need it, and it will apply to us in different ways. Sometimes a scripture like directly applies to us. Sometimes we don't know exactly how it applies to us right now, but it's really good to understand it and get, get it in the back of our heads. Sometimes it just causes us to worship because we see how great God is in the scriptures. It can do all sorts of things, but we feel that it's important in moments in our church to step away from a, a topical series where we're going after our felt needs 
and step back and just let the scriptures do their thing. Let God do his thing through the scriptures. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next eight weeks. We're going to be in the book of Romans. And uh, that is the majority of the, the majority of the summer. The rest of the summer uh, will be in Romans. And for the most part, we're going to be taking one chapter a week. That's not true of the first two weeks. But then after that, we'll be taking just a, a chapter a week and walking it out, going through the first eight uh, chapters of Romans. And that's, it's actually like, that's hyper speed. Uh, most people who study Romans, it takes a long, long time to study Romans. There's a, a whole lot in the book of Romans. But Josh and I also uh, did uh, a series on Matthew that Ruth was just talking about. And we did that in about six months. And Matthew's a book that you could spend, um, you know, a, a lifetime studying as well. So we're just going to kind of give a, a survey of the first half of the book of Romans. Um, that's where we're going to go with it. Um, so Romans is where we're going to start. I'll open us in prayer in a little bit, but I, I, I'll, I'm going to pray a little into the message. I want to I want to do some introductions to Romans before we pray today. Uh, Paul's the author of Romans. Paul writes a huge portion of the New Testament. All of his writings are one form of literature. Anybody know what Paul's writings are? They're letters. They're all letters. So he's writing either to people who he's mentoring or he's writing to uh, you know, other churches who he's planted and he's advising them and directing them and all of that. Romans stands out as very much different than the rest of his letters. As a matter of fact, sometimes when I'm reading Romans, I completely forget that it's a letter. It doesn't feel like a letter. It feels like a theology paper. It feels like it, 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 we, you know, you're eavesdropping on a seminary paper this is where someone's just talking about their theology because you don't feel the interaction in Romans that you feel in all the other books where he's directing, dropping all these names of this person. You should be doing that. And hey, by the way, when you get together and worship, don't do it like this. Or you know what? You guys really need to stop you know, cheating on one another and doing this stuff, or you need to love one another. That's the stuff he usually talks about. He's usually like kind of preaching at people through the letters. And in this one, he's not doing it at all. There's, no, there's none of that. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, the, the biggest reason is that he has no relationship with these people at all. Uh, it, Paul's never met these people who he's writing to right now. He knows they're out there, but he's never interacted with them. He did not plant this church. The rest of the churches are churches he planted. But he didn't plant this church. He's never been to this church. He's never seen this church. And so he's writing a letter to a bunch of people who don't know him, and he doesn't know them. So to get preachy right off the bat wouldn't be a good idea. You know? And uh, not to mention, he doesn't, he's not intimately equated uh, with all of the, uh, all the stuff that's going on with them. Paul's trying to begin a relationship with these Romans. This is the beginning of a relationship is what this letter is. It's a lot different than the other ones where he's exhorting and rebuking. This one, he's more introducing. He's introducing himself to these Romans. Now, in order to understand a letter, it is still a letter. And in order to understand a letter that doesn't have all of the personal dynamic in it, you really need to get to know the two different parties of the relationship, you know, who the letter's coming from and who it's going to. So I want to talk for just a second about who Paul is. Now, you, you may remember, some of you may remember, um, Paul was uh, a Pharisee, you know, he was a Jewish Pharisee, and he had studied uh, intensely in the scriptures. Uh, and he was part of the great synagogue, which is a huge seminary back then. Uh, and he was also trained in... Uh, with, with Roman education. He was a brilliant guy, smart guy. And he, when Jesus had come and resurrected and gone, ascended into heaven and the church was being built, he was a, a deeply religious Jew and he decided that it was his, his job to persecute the church because they were defiling the, the, the Jewish religion. And so he started persecuting the church and he was going after, you know, imprisoning people. He stood by. You remember the, the first time? Anybody remember the first time that we heard of Paul in the scriptures? He was known as Saul. Yeah, that was his name at the time. And what was the first thing that happened? Stephen, the first martyr of the church was Stephen. He was a guy who was stoned to death for believing in Jesus. And while he was being stoned to death, the apostle Paul, who wrote the, the huge chunk of the New Testament, was standing there holding the coats of all the people who were throwing the stones at Stephen. 
So this guy, who is in many ways the father of the church, the foundation of the church, in many ways he and Peter kind of be, are seen as the foundation of the church, he was also right there as the supervisor for the first person being martyred. He was the supervisor. He was the, he was the, uh, maybe the mob boss of the first guy being, being martyred, and he was watching this whole thing happen. Uh, he continued in his zeal. He was, a, he was a tenacious kind of guy, and he continued in his zeal until one day he was headed up to Damascus, and Damascus is like up in Syria. Uh, and as he was headed up that direction, uh, on, the, on the road up to Damascus, bright light appears, and a voice calls out from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? You know, Jesus. And he starts to realize that he's been fighting for the wrong team and that everything, everything needs to change. At that point, Saul goes into seclusion and he's gone for a while. And, uh, and then Barnabas, uh, who, if you read the scriptures, you know is another uh, apostle in the early church. He gets a hold of Paul and brings him back in, figures they can use him uh, when it comes to building the church. Well, I don't think he knew what he was bargaining for when he got a hold of Paul because Paul turns out to be the greatest missionary ever known to the church. And uh, what ends up happening through Paul is absolutely spectacular. To, to date, no one has done what Paul has done. It was absolutely phenomenal. The way Jesus worked through Paul to build his church was, was uh, mind-boggling what happened. Paul, we, church history tells us a little bit about Paul that the, that the scriptures don't. It gives us like a visual description. It tells us about his personality. Church history tells us a fair amount about Paul. Um, and uh, we're told that he was a small guy, real wiry, and he, he, was, uh, he was bald. And uh, he had like this weird voice. There was something about his voice that was weird. He was kind of blind. Not, he wasn't completely blind. He was healed of blindness from God, but he still had real eye problems. And uh, he was kind of, he was a real go-getter. The church history talks all about this stuff. When I was thinking about a visual in my mind of what Paul looked like, I thought of Wallace Shawn. Anybody know who Wallace Shawn is? Anybody know? You see the Princess Bride? Anybody ever see the Princess Bride, that guy? Vicini in the Princess Bride? And, uh, and he's like, he, he was like the most annoying guy ever, you know? And, uh, and, and that's really kind of the way Paul really seems to come across uh, in church history. Like there's nothing about this guy that's real like attractive. There's nothing about him that's inspiring. There's nothing about him that demands respect. There's, there's nothing about him that just, you know, puts you in awe and, and makes you be like, wow, what a great leader, you know? There's none of that stuff. He's just like short, wiry, kind of a weird voice and, uh, and go-getter and kind of a pushy, real pushy, you know, and that's the way Paul was. And yet God uses him to build the foundation of the kingdom of God as we know it. And it's, it's a pretty impressive thing. When you think about why Paul uh, writes this letter to the Romans when he has no relationship with them, it's really important to know his personality. You see, Paul was incredibly, incredibly driven to share the gospel. There was nothing that drove Paul more than the need to share the gospel. He was, he was just insane the way he worked in dealing with people and churches at pushing forward the gospel. And if I ask why, there's a few different reasons that I think of when I think of Paul. First of all, uh, you know, Paul says that he has an obligation, and he's going to say this in the in the text when we get to it. It says he has an obligation to share the gospel to both Jews and to Greeks. Why does Paul have an obligation? Can anyone think about why he has an obligation to share the gospel? Why is he obligated? Okay, so for one reason, he used to persecute them, okay? Barb said he used to persecute them. So here, I was hitting them like this. Now, you know, like, maybe I should love them. What else? What Christ did for him, he feels indebted to Christ because Christ has loved him so much. He's like, shouldn't I now use my life to do the work of, of the Lord? Anything else? Have you ever, there's two different ways of looking at, at obligation or debt. Uh, he says, some places he says, I'm, I'm, I'm in debt to doing this. I owe a debt. I'm obligated 
there's two different ways to look at debt. I mean, one is when you run up your credit card bill and you don't have, you know, now you're in big debt and you're trying to find a way to bail yourself out. There's no question that we have all run up a bill that's way too high. You know, we've sinned. And as soon as we sin, the, the debt we owe to God is astronomical and overwhelming and we can never pay it off. Hence the cross. Jesus dies to, to pay the debt for us. And we can never work out of the hole of, of the sin that we've committed. But there's another kind of debt, and this is what Paul's talking about. It's the kind of debt when, when I say, hey, Rob, I'm going to give you two grand. I need you to give it to Josh, okay? This is for him. You're going to see Josh. Here's two, $2,000. Can you please take it to him and give it to him? Now you, all of a sudden, now that you hold this money, you're actually in debt to Josh, aren't you? You, you have $2,000 that belong to Josh. You never took it from him. I just gave it to you. And this is what happens with Christ. You see, Christ calls Paul and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a gift. You're called to be an apostle. I am creating you in order to share my gospel. This isn't for you. These gifts I'm giving you, these spiritual gifts and this calling I'm putting on your life, they're not for you. They're for those people around you. But I'm giving them to you in order to share the gospel with them. And what Paul feels is, is a huge sense of responsibility because God has blessed him with a gift, a responsibility, an obligation, a calling. Second reason why Paul really feels the need to share the gospel is because he says that he wants to be with Christ no matter what. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection. We've said that there's three primary directions we pursue God. What are they? Up, in, and out. The spiritual disciplines that, that we just went through are shaped around that. If you have your... Uh, your uh, personal practices in pursuit of God, your booklet, the, the booklet that has all the, uh, the, the disciplines in that we handed out a few weeks ago, they're all shaped around that, uh, those spiritual disciplines. Now, uh, when it comes to Paul, we know that he had a direct line with God. I mean, his up with God was pretty phenomenal. He had these prayer experiences where he said he got raptured up into the third heaven. I don't even know what that means. I mean, honestly, scholars have debated for thousands of years what that even means, you know? But this guy had experienced things personally, spiritually with God that were phenomenal. And he, he had these encounters in his prayer life that were just spectacular. Knowing the scriptures, internal transformation, the scriptures shaping his life, Paul's life was completely transformed and turned upside down, and no one knew the scriptures better. But what Paul understood was that if he wanted to know God, a huge part of the reason that he had to know God was by serving God, by engaging, by going out and doing what God asked him to do. Because Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So he's going to follow him in mission. So that's another reason why he feels obligated because if he wants to know Christ, then he's got to be serving in mission. Now, the third reason, the biggest reason why Paul, why you feel it, that Paul senses the need to share the gospel because Paul has this belief and it's a hard belief for us to swallow in modern day America but he believes in the depths of him and he writes it all across his writing that if people don't know Jesus if people don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ that they will spend an eternity apart from God and that they can never connect with him, connect with God the way they need to in order to build the relationship that they were created for. And they will be empty and they will be, uh, you know, without the fulfillment that God has created them to enjoy. And so it's absolutely imperative that these people hear the gospel because their eternal balance and the well-being of their life stands right there in the balance of whether or not he's going to share this with them or not. And so between his calling, between his desire to know God, and between his love for people and the need for them to know the truth, Paul becomes crazy almost in his pursuit of building the kingdom of God. By the time he writes this letter, he's already had his third missionary journey. And he's built churches all over the whole eastern part of the known world at that point. All up and down Israel's coast and then into Jordan, up into Lebanon, into Syria, all the way through Turkey, and then into Macedonia, and down through Greece. He's planted churches all across this area. And what he says is, when he's writing to the Romans, he says, my work's done here. I've finished the job I was supposed to do in this land. Can you imagine this? In like six 
or seven countries. This guy says he has sufficiently planted all the churches he needs to and made the disciples that he needs to in six or seven countries. You know, it's a, that's a pretty intimidating thing when I think about what Paul accomplished in such a short period of time, and all of a sudden I'm like, what am I doing with my life? You know, and uh, it's amazing what God's, able, what God's able to accomplish with this man who's completely surrendered to him and who has the personality to just go after it. You know, and he has a specific call. He has a specific call to this as an, as an apostle, as a messenger. Um, but what happens now is it's time for him to go to the new frontier, and he knows it. He, he says, it's time for me to move on. I've done what I need to here. The church is going to start moving. People, the, the disciples that we've made here are going to make disciples of other people, and the kingdom of God is going to grow in this area. It's time for me to move on. So he thinks about the furthest place away in the known world that he knows of, and he says, I've got to go there. Anybody know where that is? Spain. He says, I've got to go to Spain. Because if you go up the coast and you go past Syria and you go through Turkey and you go... Uh, up and around and down into Greece and up and around, the next place you get to is a boot. What's the boot? That's Italy. That's who he's writing to, the people in the boot at Rome, right? And he's writing to them. But if you keep going up past the boot and you go back on the mainland and you go all the way down to the tip on the southern and western tip, where do you get to? Spain. And so what he says, he's like, I got a goal. I got a mission. God has put it on my heart to tell everyone about Jesus. I'm indebted. So I'm going to get all the way out here to Spain. But in order to get there, I need a new place that's kind of the, uh, the hub for my missions. Until now, it had been Antioch. He could kind of reach everywhere from Antioch. They were kind of the home church. But now he needs a new launch pad. He needs, needs a new church to send him. And so he's heard about this church in Rome. And who knows how that church got there. There's a decent chance that it got there because in the, Pente- the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached and 3,000 people came, we were told that there was people from all over the world who were there. And so there's a decent chance that some of those people took the gospel back with them, back to Rome and started a church there. But this Roman church had no contact with Paul, one of the few churches out there that wasn't planted by Paul. But he heard about them and he's like, I got it. Here's this wiry, gruff, guy who can't see very well, who is kind of annoying, and who's tenacious with the gospel, and all he can think of is, how do I get to the next place to share the gospel? And you can tell his brain's working, his brain's working, and he hears about the people in Rome, and he's like, I've got to meet these people. Because if I meet them, and we build a bond, we together can launch into a mission that will touch the rest of the world. So that is the premise of the book of Romans. What this is, is it's not, this isn't just a doctrinal statement. And it's not just some letter where he's rebuking or encouraging a church. What this is, is in many ways, it's Paul's resume. It's the introduction to Paul. What Paul wants is he wants to lay the foundation with the Roman church and he wants them to get to know him so that he can say, hey, we got a job to do together, let's do it. So that's what the book of Romans is all about. Okay, and uh, he'll talk about his perspective sociologically, what he sees happening all around, theologically, what he sees God doing, and he'll talk about all the perspectives that he sees. And instead of talking personally to them, he talks in a more abstract way about what he sees happening all around and begins to build a platform for them understanding the mission that they need to go on together. Okay, so that's the, that's the book of Romans. Now, what he does also in the middle of this is he begins to speak to the Romans themselves and he begins to show them, hey, this is how you fit into the big picture. This is, what God's doing with, this is what God's doing with you guys right now. This is how you play into everything that he's doing. And begins to instruct them on that. Okay, so that's the introduction to Romans. I'm going to have prayer. And we're going to spend a few more minutes getting just the, uh, the, the uh, first few verses of Romans. Let's pray. Every piece of your scripture is equally valuable, and we know it. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you that you've given us the whole thing, that you've given us the Bible. We thank you that it instructs our lives, that it lays a foundation for us. You say your word is alive, it's living and active, and it it, it breathes because you speak, your spirit speaks through your word, and it comes alive for us, and yet it's solid as a rock, and it's foundational. It's everything to us. 
You have been everything to us. And so much of what you have been has been revealed to us through your word. And we thank you and praise you for it. Help us to know it more. In Jesus' name, amen. At Parker Ford Church, I don't know if you know this or not, but we have radically different kinds of people all across our church. Uh, we, we have, um, let's see, the youngest one in the room right now is drinking a bottle, and that's Nolan. Uh, Nolan's not the youngest one in our church. Quinn is the youngest one in our church, right? Nolan was like a week before, six days before Quinn. So we have two uh, real little babies right now. How much does Nolan weigh? He's 11 pounds. Yeah, Quinn is still only like nine. Okay, so Quinn just now, Quinn, how old would Quinn be? Six weeks. Okay, so Quinn at six weeks is just now getting to where our boys were when they were born and where Nolan was when he was born. So uh, Quinn is tiny little baby. But we also, uh, uh, you know, you may recall a few weeks ago, we had uh, Betty Simon come up and we uh, gave her a plaque and honored her for years as a, as a deacon. And uh, we called her a deacon emeritus. And uh, she's 92 years old, and she's a great-grandmother of many and a and, uh, wonderful woman of God. We have great-grandchildren, and we have great-grandparents, and we have everything in between age-wise here at Parker Ford Church. It's awesome. It's a beautiful thing. We have people who have immigrated to America who aren't, weren't born in this country, who are from other countries, people who have traveled all over the world. And we have people in this, in this room, well, I don't know if we do right now, but we certainly have people in this church who... I don't think they've ever traveled from Coventry to Philadelphia. You know, I'm serious. And that's that, like just because this is home, you know, it's home. Why travel? Didn't need to, so never left. You know, we have people who have traveled from the other side of the world and people who haven't traveled to the city right next to us. We have, we have people of different race, different color. We have people of all sorts of different economic backgrounds in our church. We have uh, people who have grown up in the faith and they, 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 were, they started memorizing scripture before they can remember. You know, the, I know it's going to be that way with my boys. They're not going to know when they, when they learn some of the scriptures that they learn. And what happens with them is some of them, they have no idea when they came to faith. Uh, I don't know. Somewhere along the line, I started to believe more and more, you know, and I trust Jesus, you know, and I know that I trust Jesus and that's what it is. But they can't remember like a moment when they first began to believe. And then there's others who are with us right now who are like, I don't even know enough to know if I do believe yet. You know, uh, there, when it comes to this church building, we have plenty of people in our church who, you know, they, uh, they, they, they still don't, this church still doesn't feel like home because they spent like, you know, 70 years in a building down the street, you know. And now we've, they've been here for a couple of years and this just doesn't really feel like home. It's not going to compare to the 70 years. You know, they don't have a problem with it, but it doesn't have that feeling. And then there's some of us here who have only been here a week or two, you know, and you're like, I'm hoping that maybe this starts to feel like home, you know, and we have people all across the gamut. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. In Paul's day, when it came to the church, there was all sorts of people, all sorts of stuff coming from all sorts of perspectives. But there was two categories of people. You know what the two categories were in the church? Jews and Gentiles, otherwise known as Greeks, which is funny because we're, he's talking to Romans. And if you know world history, it's kind of funny to refer to the Romans as Greeks. Um, but, the, but what's interesting is there's the Jews and the Gentiles. And when you look at the scriptures, when you look at that, that whole period of time, that's all there was, two groups of people, Jews, Gentiles. This sets up the framework in which Paul communicates to these people. And the whole book of Romans, is this, this, polemi, this uh, you know, polemic nature of, of the, the Jew and Gentile forms the context for which he'll communicate the gospel, he'll communicate the mission, all of that. But it's all wrapped in this understanding of these two groups of people within the church. And it like stretches out a blanket. It's like the people over here and the people over here stretching out a piece of canvas that he's going to paint the gospel on. Okay, and it's in between these two, two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And when he writes to the Romans, who's he writing to? Jews or Gentiles? The Gentiles, it's obvious. You'll, as we read the, the text, as we get into the text here, you'll hear it. Now, as he's writing to the Gentiles, he's not just writing to any Gentile. When it comes to the Jews in this, in this time, 
time period. Where's the center of civilization for the Jews? What city? Jerusalem. Right, of course. And so Jerusalem is the center of civilization for them. In, in, in like the broader geography of the world and culture in general, how big of a deal was Jerusalem? Not that big of a deal, you know? Yeah, sure, it was, a, it was an important city that was connected. But like, honestly, in the Roman Decapolis, the people who would get sent, the governors who would get sent to, to go to Jerusalem and go to Israel, they were the ones who were kind of in trouble. You know, they would get sent over there. And so like Pilate and Herod and the, and the Roman kings who we hear about in the, in the scriptures that were there at the time of Jesus, they were the guys who, they weren't doing too well, so they got sent over there. You know, when it came to all of world culture, there was one city, one city that was the hub, right? What city was that? Rome. And so when it comes to Gentile culture, Rome is the middle. When it comes to world culture, Rome was the middle. When it comes to uh, religious culture in, in, uh, in Judaism and in Christianity, Jerusalem was the center, but to the rest of the world, that was irrelevant. You know? And what happens here is that Paul is writing to the people who are the stereotypical, quintessential Gentiles. So the whole conversation between Jews and Gentiles, he, this book is the book that he is writing to the people who are the stereotypical Gentile. And he's going to have use this whole book to explain how the gospel interacts with the divide, the long-term divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And because of that, it speaks massively to how the gospel affects all the relationships that we reside in. Because there's no division among us, whether it's age, how long we've been in this church, what we do for work, where, what country we come from. There's no divide that's as big as the divide of the Jews and the Gentiles back then. You know, no divide. So this speaks radically to us on those levels. Now, when Paul begins to speak to the Romans, uh, we understand that these people are used to being the center of culture. They sit on top of the world. You know, they're the, they're the nation at the time who is the nation who has been feared by all others. They're the nation who's been understood to be a world power. They're a, na- they're a nation of people who have pretty much been able to do what they want, have what they want, whenever they want. And for those of you who live in America, you know, anybody live in America? Those of us who live in America, you know, like we, we understand, you know, there's, there's, there's a real problem with arrogance, There's a deep problem with arrogance in America. We just don't see the bigger picture. The world, in our opinion, oftentimes revolves around us, you know? And we think that the the New York City is like Rome back then, you know? World kind of just revolves around New York City. And and the truth is, is that there was a rude, rude wake-up call years ago, wasn't there? And it's changed how America really views itself in a lot of ways. And the whole like superpower thing, in many of our minds, it's begun to change a little bit, hasn't it? And we begin to feel a little bit more like, no, we're a part of a bigger globe than just America. And uh, Rome at the time seemed invincible. This is at the very beginning of Nero's reign. Things hadn't broken loose yet. Rome hadn't burned to the ground yet. The Christians hadn't been used as torches yet. It hadn't happened. This is the beginning of Nero's reign, and Rome was in all of its glory. And he's writing to the quintessential Gentiles who really are going to have a hard time getting beyond themselves. And so he needs to speak clearly and openly to them. We may also benefit from that kind of communication. So here it is. Stand with me as we read our scripture. Romans chapter 1, we'll read the first 17 verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? 
That's the first four verses. All he's doing there is just laying the groundwork. Hey, it's all about Jesus. This thing was prophesied from deep. We're not going anywhere beyond Jesus, not going anywhere beyond the gospel. This is rock solid stuff. We're all on the same page here. It's all about God. It's all about the Son of God. It's the gospel. Okay, that's what he does in the first four verses. Then he begins to lay out the purpose. Verse 5, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. What's he calling the Gentiles to? Obedience that comes from faith. Remember when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world, uh, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. So Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission and tells us to go all across the world and make disciples, the end of that discipleship is to get people into a place of obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ. And that's what he's saying. Faith, a faith in Jesus that leads to obedience. Okay, verse 6. And you also are among those who are, being, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints... Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because of your faith, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. In my prayers at all times, and I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me, that I may come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you and make you strong. That is, that, I'm, that you and I may, mutually, may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles." Okay, so those verses there is him kind of laying out his whole interaction and his perspective with them. Then he gets into verse 14 where he kind of wraps that section up and he says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You can have a seat. So, he says, I am obligated. Can you kill, uh, turn the AC down, even give us a little more AC? I just felt some heat coming through. Thank you. So uh, when it comes to uh, verse 14 there, he says, I'm obligated. We talked about this obligation and why he's obligated, you know. And uh, I just want to ask you a question. This is, this is kind of a side note. But Paul feels this obligation because there's a call on his life. I, I'd like to know what kind of obligation you feel with your life. What is it that you feel like you're indebted to do. Not because you've done bad stuff and you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole, but what is it that God's placed in you to do? And now you're obligated because he's put it in you to do. Each one of us, Romans 11, we're not going to get that in this series. We'll get it in the next Roman series, the second half. But it tells us that God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. There's a call on each of our lives. There's gifts for each of our lives. And they're irrevocable. They're there. There's nothing we can do with them. There's a debt now. Because he said this is your job, now all of a sudden there's an obligation. So the real question I have in this moment is, what is your obligation? What's your debt? You have one? You have one? You feel it? You feel like your life needs to be about something? All right. Just think about it and pray about it. If you don't know, ask God about it. Now I'm going to get us right to the the whole crux of the, this passage. It all comes down to the last two verses. Last two verses, verses 16 and 17. What's happening here is um, Paul's using a literary form called a diatribe. And uh, when back, back then, it was, it was a literary form where you were discussing things and helping nuance all the different things you were trying to say by kind of pretending that someone was arguing with you. 
but there, no one's really arguing with him. He hasn't even met these people yet. So it's not like he's dealing with the, the, the things that they're saying. It's like he's supposing, like, if someone was to say this, then this is how I would respond, you know? And that's kind of how this whole thing's set up. It's called a diatribe. So it's almost like there's an imaginary friend that he's talking to right now, okay? And so he, there's any time that you sense an argument in the book of Romans, he's not arguing with anybody. He's just trying to prove a point. That's what's going on. And every diatribe starts with a thesis. The thesis is, this is what I'm trying to say, okay? Thesis. This is what I'm trying to say. The rest of the diatribe is him responding to possible counterparts. Well, someone might not believe that because they might believe this, but this is what I have to say about that. Or they might not believe it because of this, but this is what I have to say about that. And he goes down through and nuances all the different possibilities that people, uh, you know, all the different possible arguments against it. This verse 16 and 17 is the thesis. This is the beginning of the whole diatribe. This is where he states what in general he's trying to say to the Romans, what he wants them to know above everything else as he's doing like an intro to Paul to the Romans. Hey, I want you to know me. We need to form this partnership. I need to get to Spain. This is the thing you need to know about me. And this is the thing you need to know about this mission. This is the thing you need to know about the gospel. Verse 16, I'm going to read it again. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, the first part, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's awesome. You know what's hilarious about it? Is I think, like, really, Paul? Why are you telling us you're not ashamed of the gospel? You've already been on three missionary journeys and planted churches all over the world. It's a given you're not ashamed of the gospel. You're ecstatic about the gospel. Everything else you've written is about the gospel. You've sold out your life for the gospel. Why are you telling us you're not ashamed of the gospel? Well, two reasons. One is because maybe the Romans don't know yet, and just in case, he might as well tell them. You know? But there's another reason, and a bigger reason, and it's because there's all sorts of people who are ashamed of the gospel. The temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is huge. Jesus knew it, which is why Jesus gives us this scary statement that says, if you are ashamed of me in front of them, then I will be ashamed of you in front of my Father. That's the words of Jesus, and I will not compromise them. We can explain them away and do all sorts of stuff, but they are what they are. He just says, if you're ashamed of me in front of them, I'm going to be ashamed of you in front of him. He knows that the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is so big. Why? What is it about the gospel that would make us be ashamed of it? Well, there's all sorts of things. First of all, the gospel, it's just black and white. You know, it says this is a truth. It's reality. And we won't compromise it no matter what. You know how offensive that is to people who don't believe the same thing? You're saying that everything that I believe that isn't in line with this is wrong? I'm sorry. I can't be ashamed of the gospel. He said, this is what God said it is. I don't know what else to do with it. That hurts me. It hurts me to be that strong about truth. Honestly, as a person... I don't like being that strong because I don't like people being hurt by something that's that strong. And yet, we need something that strong to save us. And so it is what it is, and you can't compromise it. It's easy to be ashamed of it when we get into a context where, you know, someone wants to believe something a little bit different than that, and I don't want to be offensive to them, so, I don't know, I'm a little bit ashamed of the gospel, you know? No, it is what it is. If I compromise it, I did it without the permission of God. You know, that's his word, not mine. I can't change it. Second reason, you know that we're told in the scriptures that the gospel is considered foolishness to men. In Corinthians, Paul writes that it's foolishness. It looks like it's just foolishness. It's ridiculous. And so some people think it's ridiculous. And because of that, it's easy to be ashamed of it because we care what other people think. For some people, it's a stumbling block. It messes up their life. 
If you tell them, it messes up their life. I don't want it to mess up your life. You know, I'm not trying to mess up your life, but the gospel is what it is. There's all sorts of reasons to be ashamed of the gospel, but there's one main reason to be ashamed of the gospel. You know what it is? The main reason to be ashamed of the gospel is because it pulls the rug out from underneath our lives. Because what it does is, is you see, the great, you knew that there was no way I was going to get through this message without talking about U.S. World Cup, right? Um, I didn't do it in first service. It's just like the light bulb just went on. You know, I, I was watching uh, bits and pieces of it as I was studying yesterday and, the, and getting as much of it as I could in. And, the, uh, and there was this one moment where they, they went down 2-1. No, it was, they were down, at first they were down one nothing, you know, and... Uh, and the commentators were saying, you can't count them out, you know? They have that, like, just uh, insatious self-belief. They always believe, yes, we can, you know? And they're, they're like, it's the American spirit, you know? And sure enough, they go and score a goal. And you're like, oh my gosh, they actually did. And then, like, it goes up 2-1. And again, the commentators saying, like, they believe in themselves so much that they'll fight to the bitter end, you know? And they'll always go after it. And they did. They fought to the bitter end. How far did self-belief get them? It got them into the Sweet 16 round. It got them into the knockout round, you know? It really can get you somewhere when you believe in yourself. But how far does it get you? It can't get you far enough. It can never, ever get you far enough. And what the gospel does is it takes the rug, and if you're standing on your own two feet like a good American, it takes the rug and it just rips it out. And it says, you do not stand on your own two feet. You stand on Jesus or you don't stand at all. Because there's a righteousness that has been revealed. You see, all of us want to be right. All of us want to be good. All of us want to be valuable. All of us want to be special. All of us want to be loved. All of us want to be beautiful. You know? We want something. But if I ask you today, what makes you you? What makes you special? What makes you legit? What makes you valuable? What do you bring to the table? No matter what we say, the gospel rips the carpet right out from underneath of it. And it says, that doesn't make you special. I don't care how obedient you've been to God. That doesn't make you special. I don't care how successful you've been. That doesn't make you special. I don't care if you're a Jewish Pharisee who has the entire Torah memorized. That doesn't make you special. I don't care if you're a Roman citizen who lives in Rome and you're standing on top of the world and, and you got everything that you can think of. That doesn't make you special. I'll tell you what makes you special. Blood flowing off of a cross because God died for you because he loves you. That's what makes you special. And if you're too hooked on being special for your own unique reasons, then the gospel won't work for you. So you might as well be ashamed of it. Because the gospel requires that I get on my knees. The gospel requires that I admit that I'm dependent that I'm not self-made, that I can't go it on my own, and I can't even go it with just my family and with my church, that I need Jesus, and I'm a broken, dirty sinner. So I either need to be ashamed of myself or ashamed of the gospel. One of the two. Paul, he would rather be saved than proud. He'd rather live in the truth, then die a slow, painful lie of a life that isn't really a life anymore. He'd rather be the picture of that guy on the, scene, on the screen who's like not good looking and bald and all of that, you know, and like not having the attractive things and yet being tenacious for Jesus because what he knows is I'm loved by my God and I don't need to prove anything to anyone. And so therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that leads to salvation. And I'm not saved because of anything else. You might be a Roman, whoop de do You might be a Jew, whoop-de-doo. Are you a child of the living God? Do you know God? And there's only one way, and it's on your knees, and it's through his cross. And there's no way to get yourself there. There's only a way to depend on him. The foundation of the gospel is faith. Faith is dependence. 
dependence. What happens when we believe is that it changes our view of ourselves and the world around us. It changes our perspective on everything. What happens when we trust is we begin to act differently. The righteous are those who have been given a righteousness by God. Those who have been made valuable, who have been made right, and who can actually begin to feel incredibly different about themselves. We are now righteous. And the righteous live by faith. I didn't earn the righteousness. The righteousness came from God. And the righteous live by faith. Because when we begin to believe that we are righteous, it will change the way we live. Let me end by telling you this. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Right? Value is assigned by the person looking at the product. There is one who says that we are righteous. There is one who says that we are beautiful. There is one who says that we are valuable. And we have a choice in our lives, whether to believe him or not. When I don't believe him, I've got to spend my entire life trying to figure out how to be valuable, righteous, and good, and beautiful, and all of that. When I do believe him, it's a done deal. And now I live my life by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Wait, doesn't it say that the righteous will live by godly values? Or the righteous will, will live by good stewardship? The righteous will live by faith. The foundation of our faith is one thing. It's a cross. So, Maybe you feel a little more valuable or a little less valuable because you haven't been a Parker Ford Church longer than another person. Maybe you feel a little less valuable because, you know, the guy next to you at work has a better job and got the, got the raise. Maybe you feel a little less valuable when you look at that magazine cover and you don't look like the person on the cover. Maybe you feel a little less valuable because of this or because of that. And the bottom line for the gospel, what Paul says is, you might be a Gentile, you might be a Jew. There's one thing that unifies us. One thing and one thing alone. And it's that I am not a Jew. I am not a Gentile. I am not successful. I am not beautiful. I am just another broken sinner in need of a Savior. And I got that in common with each and every one of you. Believe it or not, but it's the reality. And that's where we're at. A bunch of broken sinners hanging out in this place together. And when we get on our knees and we receive the blood of Jesus and we're redeemed, we choose to take him at his word. And even though I don't feel valuable, you know what? He says I am. So I better start feeling valuable. You know? And start treating myself and others like they're valuable too. Let's pray. Jesus, your gospel is unending. It's spectacular. There's nothing like it. It wins the day over and over again. Your sacrifice we can't quantify. We don't know how to praise you enough for the sacrifice. But it's the one thing that gives us value. And God, I ask that you protect our church. I know that there is absolutely nothing that is more detrimental in a community than our insecurities. Because then our competitions arise and we try to prove ourselves next to one another. There's nothing more detrimental to the communities than our own insecurities. God, fill us again with faith to believe in the imputed righteousness, the value that you've placed on us, the goodness that we actually are because the blood of Jesus. Give us the faith to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to let go and to trust. God, I ask that you be with each one and blessed throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.